three modern popes vindicate, recognize, and resist. And Ratzinger confirms, recognize, and resist in its theory. In fact, Vatican II itself confirms, recognize, and resist, which vindicates the trads. Brethren in Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus in sequela. This is Timothy Flanders with Immunity of Catholic. Jesus is King. Welcome to Pope Benedict Vindicates the Trads. This is a series about the Tradism and Pope Benedict, Joseph Rasker, and all of the things that he has done in his life, which vindicate the Trads. This is a series by Trads, for Trads, discussing the history of benedict and discussing all this let, let me look at the um remind everyone this is part 17 of this series uh let me see if i can pull this up yes okay so if you go down here to the description we have all the parts listed here so you can go back and watch all these some of them are for the guild stream only um but there are currently 17 parts right now so um this is trying to build the steel man case for traditionalism using Pope Benedict as the main source to vindicate the trads. So this is uh, meant to be a series to build this, this case. And today we'll talk about the basic theory of recognize and resist and why, in my view, I think that Ratzinger confirms this and we can see this in the history of the 20th century. And before we get into this, I just want to remind everyone to please support this channel. You can like and subscribe. We're also releasing a book later this, this year called The Roman Catechism Explained for the Modern World. If you are a Guild member, you can be a part of this launch. You can get an advanced copy of this book for free. You can help us launch the book. You can get all other free books. Go to patreon.com slash meaning of Catholic to join the Guild. We can also give you access to the Guild for free if you can't afford it. Um, this year has been difficult. We, we've tried to, last year we were growing the guild, growing the, the apostolate, hoping to expand it this year with paying more people. Uh, but just due to the economics, it's just been up and down. So if you've benefited from this series at all, if you've benefited from this apostolate, please support us. Help this thing keep it going. Patreon.com slash Meaning of Catholic. You can also make a one-time donation at meaningofcatholic.com. So, Let's get into our topic. <clears throat> so first, I want to quote from the, the theoretical basis that Cardinal Ratzker gives for recognize and resist. This is given in his document called Donum Veritatis. Donum Veritatis is the uh, the title of the document is uh, here. Let me pull this up on the screen. Oh, let's see here. So here, here is the actual text here. Let me get back to the beginning of this document to show. Okay, so this is from the CDF. This is in 1990, Donum Veritatis, which means the gift of truth. Um, and it is, the subtitle is On the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. And in this document, he really describes the theory of recognize and resist. So we're going to go through a few quotes here, and then we'll go through these three historical instances and Vatican II and talk about why those things really vindicate that this whole position of, of the 
the trads. Um, so let me X this off and I'll get all my quotes here. So what he does here in this document is that he discusses a situation that could arise where a theologian has a problem with the wording of a magisterial text. So he says here in paragraph 24, it can happen that a theologian may, according to the case, raise questions regarding the timeliness, the form, or even the contents of magisterial interventions. So this is illustrating a situation where a theologian basically has a has problems with the way that what the magisterium is saying or doing. And in his conscience, he feels that he must raise an objection, essentially. And th this is a form of resistance. This isn't just I'm going to assent 100 percent to everything we're saying. I'm going to actually withhold my assent in some way because I'm recognizing that there could be an issue here. Now, he goes on going on to um, the uh, let's see. Page eight. Where are we? OK, so par paragraph twenty five. Tensions may arise between the theologian and the magisterium. If tensions do not spring from hostile and contrary feelings, they can become a dynamic factor, a stimulus to both the magisterium and theologian to fulfill their respective roles while practicing dialogue. So this would be a true form of dialogue, which is what, what we might call uh, dialogos, as I, I call it in my book, uh, particularly the Socratic form which is where you are actually sharpening one another so that the truth is actually comes out more clearly. So here we have a situation where a theologian is with basically withholding his consent. He's, he's practicing some form of resistance, but he's recognizing the authority of the magisterium. And then by doing so, he is not coming from a hostile and contrary feeling but from a, a stimulus to create this this true dialogue, this true dialogue with the magisterium. Now, he goes on to describe it this way. Paragraph 30. If, despite a loyal effort on the theologian's part, the difficulties persist, the theologian has the duty to make known to the magisterial authorities the problems raised by the teaching in itself, in the arguments proposed to justify it, or even in the manner in which it is resented. He should do this in an evangelical spirit and with a profound desire to resolve the difficulties. His objections could then contribute to real progress and provide a stimulus to the magisterium to propose the teaching of the church in greater depth and with a clearer presentation of the arguments. So again, he's presenting this idea of a resistance, which is actually fruitful, a fruitful back and forth with the magisterium. Uh, in paragraph 31, he says, a loyal spirit animated by the love for the church, such a situation can certainly prove a difficult trial. It can be a call to suffer for the truth in silence and in prayer, but with the certainty that if the truth is really at stake, it will ultimately prevail. <clears throat> so he's saying that if a theologian who might actually be resisting something from the magisterium may actually be suffering for the truth here, that's a remarkable claim to make about a theologian who's withholding his assent in some way in a pious manner. Now, notice here, he discusses in part B, the problem of dissent. And he says in this, this final part, I'm going to quote here in page, uh, paragraph 32, he says that the public opposition to the magisterium of the church, also called dissent, must be distinguished from the situation of personal difficulties treated above. Now, 
he goes on to discuss dissent. Now, here we have the historical example of Hans Kuhn in particular, or other theologians and bishops and priests who dissented from Humane Vitae. And those are really the real bad actors who dissented impiously, not as some sort of fruitful dialogue with the magisterium. But what we note here is that he makes this distinction that there is a form of resistance which can actually be fruitful. And we think here in particular of, first of all, Vatican II itself, because as we discussed in some of the first shows in this whole series, is that Ratzinger and his pals, his resourceful pals in the 40s and 50s, were silenced or suspected, and they were actually critiquing the status quo of the magisterium. So they themselves were a form of recognize and resist. They were practice, practicing a recognize and resist. They finally gained the ear of the magisterium at Vatican II, and they were able to push forward their program at Vatican II. So you can see what Ratzker says in these words about suffering in silence. That would that would be that Ratzker would probably say that that would be Henri de Lubac. Henri de Lubac suffered in silence because he was silenced by his order, but then later vindicated, seemingly, by the magisterium as a part of Vatican II. Um, but Vatican II itself is, is this, this action of recognize and resist, because these theologians were resisting the magisterium status quo, and they later prevailed. This is that fruitful dialogue that Ratzinger is hoping for in this this recognize and resist. Now, there's three other instances of this that I want to discuss. The first is the Ottaviani intervention. If you're a trad, you've probably heard of this document. Uh, so the way this this was actually this is described in great detail in uh, Michael Davies, Volume Three, Pope Paul's New Mass, and he talks about the general instruction to the new Roman Missal. This new Roman Missal was the, the general instruction, which proposes the definition for the, the mass, was released in spring of 1969 ahead of the promulgation of the actual rite later that year. Now, this promulgation was given by Paul VI, and this promulgation included certain phrases which were either heretical or near heretical in their doctrinal content describing the mass. And for example, the use of the, the phrase Lord's Supper in the context of the definition of the mass in the general instruction as it was promulgated. Now, the, the phrase Lord's Supper is obviously from the Holy Scripture. However, it had gained a heretical meaning by its use by the Protestants. And what we have and what was promulgated in spring of 1969, we have essentially a very Protestant understanding of the mass, uh, a denial or omission of the real presence of Christ, the sacrificial nature of the mass, and uh, very much a Protestant understanding of the mass that's promulgated by Paul VI in spring of 1969. This is what prov provokes this, what's, what's called the critical study of the new mass, or aka the Ottaviani intervention. And 
this is an at this is a, again this is another instance of recognize and resist so we have cardinal taviani and uh what was it bachu i think or i can't remember the other the other cardinal i think there were more cardinals or bishops who wanted to sign it but didn't actually um but what happened was that they they it was an act of recognize and resist where they critiqued the general instruction and the new mass. And this was what provoked Paul VI to respond and correct this general instruction. And so the next year, there was a new version of this general instruction of the Roman Missal that was promulgated, which attempted to resolve these difficulties, these quasi-heretical phrases that existed in the general instruction. So here we have the first instance of a pope, a modern pope, responding to this recognize and resist action and doing it positively, exactly as Ratzinger describes. This is a, this is, Ottaviani presented this not in a hostile spirit, but in a pious spirit saying, Holy Father, I recognize your authority, yet I can't fully assent to this without these reservations. And so he gives these reservations. Paul VI, to his credit, responds to them positively and promulgates a new general instruction. That's in 1969 to 1970. So the, um, let me see if I can, I want to just grab a, an example um, if I can. Okay, so the, um, in the 1969 version, okay, here, here's the 1969 version. The Lord's Supper or Mass is the sacred assembly or meeting of the people of God met together with a priest presiding to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. For this reason, the promise of Christ is particularly true of a local congregation of the church where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst. End quote. This is a, this is a paragraph that a Protestant really wouldn't have any problem with. In fact, Michael Davies points out how the early Protestants actually used the term mass, but they used it in this memorial sense. And that notice what's missing here, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It's saying that the presence of Christ is actually in the congregation. And it's using this, the, the historically Protestantized phrase, Lord's Supper. And so what was added to it was that the, um, the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated in the mass. This is what, what was added in the next version. And they also added that Christ is substantially and continuously present in the Eucharistic species. So those are things that the Protestants wouldn't like. So we actually have a correction here. So we have Paul VI confirming, recognize, and resist by responding fruitfully to this back and forth with the theologians described in Donum Veritatis. Now, we have the, the second example of recognize and resist comes from what is also promulgated in 1969, which is Comme le Poivre. This document was promulgated with the Concilium under Paul VI, which provided the principles of liturgical translation of the new mass, but it included certain principles wherein the Catholic doctrines should be suppressed when the Novus Ordo is translated from Latin into the vernacular. So this is, if you're familiar with the Novus Ordo in English, this is why we went from the second the, the second edition Roman Missal to the third edition Roman Missal, because what happened was 
there was this was uh you probably heard of father z he had a he his original blog's name was what does the prayer really say and the reason his blog was called that was because he was actually reading the latin and then he was comparing the latin with what these this translation came up with based on com la pova so there was an organization of priests called credo and this organization of priests was recognizing and resisting this document and this promulgated translation so we have a promulgated an officially promulgated right in the vernacular that's being resisted by this organization called credo and it's this came to a head especially in the 1990s when the some bishops and some pressure groups were pushing for more and more gender neutral language and whatnot in the holy mass in the vernacular english uh, novus ordo and what happened was under ratzinger uh, and in John Paul II's pontificate, they also had a fruitful interaction with this organization, which ended up reversing Com La Pova by promulgating a document called Liturgium Authenticum in 2001. This document reversed the former principles of translation. And this is what gave us the third edition of the Roman Missal. So as a, as a, a conspicuous example is, Lord, I'm not worthy to, that I should enter into my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. In the second edition of that, following the principles of Kamal Pava, the, the word soul was removed from the English translation because one of the things was that we shouldn't use soul and spirit in these, what they called Greek dualism. Um, so in the English translation, they removed the term soul I mean, that's ridiculous, of course, but this is what was promulgated. And so you have this group recognizing and resisting this, which leads to the third edition of the Roman Missal by revoking what Paul VI did. So this is another confirmation of the same thing under John Paul II. Now, finally, we have the third example, which is also under Pope Benedict. This is the most famous example. Uh, but this also, this especially comes from the lay people. So this was especially in 1964, Una Voce was founded, which was very much a lay organization, which promoted the Latin mass and retaining the Latin mass for decades and decades, which ultimately was confirmed and vindicated really by Simone Pontificum, which is where Pope Benedict, as we all know, uh, confirmed the the rights of every priest to say the latin mass and this is once again a confirmation of a decades-long recognized and resist struggle so to sum up essentially the the principles of donum veritatis apply to these three different instances now in fairness we need to be we need to be very careful and this is something i, I personally struggle with because i as the editor of 1 Peter 5, I am, I am criticizing the Pope or criticizing bishops, and I want to do it in a, a true spirit of piety, and I don't want to provoke any readers to hate the Pope or have a hostile spirit. I do want this to be something exactly as Don Amfaritati says, something that is done as a means to draw attention to things that, that might that need improvement, to say the least. Uh, in, in a, a hopes that there can be a fruitful exchange. Um, and so this is something that we should be careful with as trads. We could tr we'd try our best with God's help to really try to pronounce our criticisms or our critiques or our uh, 
uh, grievances in a pious manner, in, in a way that does provoke piety and not hatred. And that's difficult because there's a lot of bad things out there and it's a lot of bad things. And, you know, it, it is difficult. And uh, I'm sure I have failed in that. And I, I forgive me if and when I have failed in that personally in my own public comments. Um, but we do want to, as much as we can, promote this in, in a fruitful way for the good of the church and in, in a way that really does create this dynamic that is a fruitful back and forth between the magisterium and the lay faithful or the theologian. So that is, that's all we have. We, this is what we were trying to bring out. Um, now stay tuned because on Monday we'll have a conversation about this uh, with Jake Fowler and Jeremiah Bannister who will be critiquing this. So they'll bring bringing out um, their, uh, their own thoughts on it. And so we'll be discussing that. I want to get a few, uh, get to a few comments. Uh, Anthony, what's up, brother? Um, welcome. Andrea says, what did Taviani do? He published these objections and then submitted to the new mass and all the reforms. Only if I've actually did something constructive. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say only Lefebvre. I would say that there was many different people doing things. There were f fewer then, I think, but um, I don't, I wouldn't say that Ottaviani submitted without any reservation uh, based on his actions, but um, ultimately I, I would, I would promote a sympathetic rating of really everybody involved. I mean, including Paul the six, just kind of being sympathetic to hindsight and what we can see now. Um, I think that we can see different, different moves that we should have done or we should have done it's always easier to see things in hindsight and see what we should have done. But um, I think we should judge everyone as fairly as possible and as sympathetically as possible. Um, salvation for Yvonne says salvation for many becomes salvation for all, but the more evident was the locution God of the universe inserted in the Messales before Eucharistic prayers. It's not biblical and never used before. Uh, th yeah, this is an example. I'm not really familiar with the God of the universe, um, term. I am not sure if that's the, before the Eucharist, I don't know if that's the offertory prayers you're referring to, but, uh, yeah, the salvation of all that is when during the consecration prayer, um, the, the Latin says, um, that, uh, it is, is given up for you and for many or shed for you. And for many, the blood of Christ is shed for you and for many, not for all because the actual text of the Holy scripture says for many. And so there, the, the second edition of the English did say for all, which was not exact, which was not what was said. Um, would be good if Ratzker actually had courage to vindicate Lefebvre. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm not, prepared to say for certain exactly what went down in night 88. Um, I think we don't have all the documents to know exactly all the story. Um, so I, I, I couldn't really say, I am not really sure if ultimately Ratziger did side or if he was forced to side against him. Uh, he, it's does seem that the, but Ratziger and John Paul II's magisterium concedes quite a bit to Lefebvre after 88. And, you know, he's condemned, but then there's just concession after concession from Rome. So, and whereas the SSPX don't really change much. So I, I'm not sure. I'm still studying that. 
Um, Pedro says the SSPX falls into set privationism regarding the magisterium. It's tragic. The Novus Ordo is in fact deficient, not heretical. Um, I, I think that's certainly arguable. Um, I, I, yeah, I, any form of set privationism, I, I would reject. Um, I don't, I don't think the SSPX officially holds a view like that, but they do hold, uh, officially that there is a deficiency, obviously in the new rights. Um, news from the UGC, the C that's the Ukrainian Greek Catholic church. They are updating Ukrainian language liturgical books to have gender inclusive pronouns, i.e. brethren to brothers and sisters. Uh, yes, that's very unfortunate, of course. Um, and unfortunately, that's that's happening in the Eastern Rite. Even that's that's unfortunate. Um, Ivan says it's before the Eucharist prayer here in Italy. It was used a lot in the '80s here in my diocese. An old priest have used this how to protest for continuing to do the Latin Mass and Ratzker gives. Okay, so the the God of the Universe prayer that he's referring to um, was used in Italy, I guess. Um, all right. Um, well. Thanks so much for your comments, everybody. And so this has been Pope Benedict Vindicates the Trads. So once again, please uh, like and subscribe. Please become a patron, patreon.com slash Catholic. Let's offer up a Hail Mary to finish this out. Uh, I want to pray for all trads that our movement can be positive, to be, to be a really a positive influence on Catholics and the church. And we can have a positive back and forth with the magisterium so that we can present our critiques in a pious manner and not with a hostile spirit. Let's pray. In nomine Patris, if you these, but your sancti, amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum diarbus, et benedictus frutus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre, amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons, pray for us. St. Anthony of the Desert, pray for us. In nomine Patris, sit for the Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus is King.